You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to a new episode of the Today in Manufacturing podcast. With me today are Jeff Ranke and Anna Wells. We each have about 15 years of experience covering the manufacturing industry. Every week, we take the five most popular stories on our websites and discuss the implications they might have on the industry going forward. We're going to try going live again, so if you have any questions or comments for the podcast, please make sure to drop those in the comments section below. And before we get started, make sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast. You could also help us out a lot by giving us a positive review on whatever platform you use. And if you want to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, Anna, or David at IEN.com. Anna. Are you excited for going live this week? Yeah, I am. And if David says the F word accidentally, it's live. And just know that it is less times than he normally says it in the span of an hour. I really, he is trying, I think. I really have to restrain myself a lot. Jeff. Yeah, like, especially with having the microphone in front of you, I think there's just sort of a normal tendency that you have to share your thoughts without any type of filter mm-hmm. um, right there. So, Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, the cursing in the office is abundant. <laughs> All right. Uh, Again, before we get started, comments and questions below, and we'll get to those around the final thought. Let's get started with our first story this week. Anti-drunk driving tech featured in infrastructure bill. Tucked somewhere deep in President Joe Biden's 2,702-page $1 trillion infrastructure bill is some precarious language. According to Reuters, U.S. regulators would be required to mandate technology that would prevent drunk drivers from starting vehicles. The U.S. DOT would have three years to come up with the rules and technology, and then automakers would have two years to implement it. If regulators didn't get it done in 10 years, the department is required to report to Congress. And Jeff, I just was wondering what that report would look like. So in 10 years, they're going to show up and go, we didn't make it. Sorry. Yeah. And then they say what? Well, go back and get it done. Okay, so you just described that in about 30 seconds. Why did they need 2,700 pages? What is, yeah, how do you do that? You got a lot of important people that, talking in that document, Jeff. Is that like a bigger font and a lot of spacing? Like It's college rules. College type stuff? Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> two and a half spacing. Yeah. yeah. Um, so overall, I mean, when we look at the sort of the heart of the story, it's a good idea, right? I don't think it'd be, think it'd be difficult to argue with the fact that if we can reduce drunk driving statistics by using some of this technology, that's obviously a positive thing. Saw one comment on the site wondering what this was doing in an infrastructure bill. Well, if somebody has too much to drink and they create an accident by driving through a pole holding up power lines mm-hmm. or taking out an, a median in the highway, that's infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's mm-hmm. cost. So all this makes sense. I just think where I went initially is with the, how difficult it's going to be, obviously, to implement it if you're talking about retrofitting cars, but then also the reliability of these sensors. Mm-hmm. Right now, if the the tire pressure sensor goes on, the fuel pressure sensor goes on, you've got a temperature gauge that's off, you can still start and drive your car. Mm-hmm. Okay, if we're talking about implementing technology that will not allow people to start their vehicle because the vehicle is saying you've had too much to drink, whether it be touch, smell, whatever, that has to be so accurate because I just mm-hmm. think about, like when we play softball, mm-hmm. you know, I'll be in the office till 545, 6 o'clock, there's no one here. Mm-hmm. If I if there's something malfunctioning with that sensor, do I have to call a tow truck in order to? <laughs> I mean, how do you start the vehicle? How do you get out of here? I thought you were going to say there's nobody here, so you have a couple. <laughs> 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 no, uh, but you're right. I mean, you get stranded, and the reliability of those sensors is still lacking. Yeah. Um, Anna, what were your thoughts on this? I mean, I feel like it's good to prevent drunk driving, but you really got to make sure make sure something like this works. Uh, Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think like this is getting a lot of attention and this is a technology that we don't understand Mm -hmm. because it doesn't exist. Right. There's a lot of um, technology in this bill that applies to things that already exist and are ready to go, like um, automatic emergency braking, crash avoidance, um, sensing systems that are reminding you that you left a child in the backseat. All of that is also in this infrastructure bill of mandating Mm -hmm. these. Um, There's also like... uh, those rear guards for the back of trucks that prevent you from, and if you're in a passenger car going underneath and getting oh. crushed, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think like, let's look at some of that stuff too, and not just like look at this strange yet to be determined <laughs> drunk driver prevention technology. And, you know, th- there's a lot of good things I think in this bill. Mm-hmm. Um, I know people hate 
regulations. But if you look at the change in driver safety during the pandemic, for example, yeah, <laughs> like there were fewer the drastic dri- change. Yeah, yeah, like there were fewer drivers on the road. Yet it was a deadlier year than we've had in a while. I mean, we essentially went backwards. And I think that the lesson there is that driver behavior doesn't improve over time. Mm-hmm. It's not, it can actually get worse, you know? And we know that because we've seen that with like distracted driving and text messaging and all that stuff. We know it can get worse. Um, the pandemic apparently made people speed more. Mm-hmm. Uh, so well, I don't know. I think if the, if the technology exists that can help us save lives, then let's make it a standard, you know? Like by now the automakers are probably just like, whatever, throw it on the pile. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, at this point, what's the difference? Well, it's just... The reason I talk about making sure we get it right, because some of those things, like leaving a child in the car, those sensors work. And if they're, mm-hmm. if you have weight on those seats, your car is going to beep until, you know, even when you close the door, is an early warning system. But some of those, like the groggy or tire, my car has a tired, uh, tire driver sensor. And it's this cute little cup of coffee that pops up on your screen and says, time for a break. And uh, you get asked if you need a break. Yeah. And let's just say that, no, I don't need a break. And my passengers sure as hell don't need to see that. Why are you that so I, grumpy? Do you drive oh, you like tired? you need a break? I have actually ridden with you, and you do drive like you need a break. I don't need a break. Sometimes those lines are there as more of a suggestion. I don't think that's why they're there. So, no. But I'm just saying that if a sensor like that, if that cup of coffee could all of a sudden shut down my car, that's a problem. Like uh, It made me think of interlock devices, which sort of work, but there's a problem with those getting installed. A number of people are ordered to get those in their car, and they never do because there's no oversight for that. Uh, It also, uh, the driver attentive uh, sensor, like I mentioned, but in May, so Nissan showed off a new concept car that had multiple anti-drunk driving technologies. And if the car, I was wondering if the car thought you were drunk and it it won't let you operate manually, but maybe it would let you still operate it autonomously. And this system was pretty interesting though, because... Uh, some of the features included a high-sensitivity alcohol sensor on the transmission knob that would uh, detect alcohol in your sweat. And if it detected alcohol in your sweat, it would automatically lock the transmission and immobilize the car. A drunk driving voice alert that sounds through your car's nav. I mean, how terrible would you feel as a human when like, you go to shift and your car just goes, think you're too drunk, bud. <laughs> That's the voice. I mean, but it's... Hey. Yeah. Hey, bud. Not going to happen, bud. Uh, there's also alcohol odor sensors that incorporated into the driver and passenger seats that detect, detect the presence of alcohol, which I thought could be a slippery slope. But that was, again, just an audible alert. Because, I mean, I mean, there have been times where you're driving two or three people in that car and there's an odor. Uh, also, <laughs> when alcohol is detected, oh, when it detects, you get the message alert. And then camera that monitors the driver's face and another system that monitors the behavior. So... All of these systems on this one concept car, I think, could be pretty, could make a big impact. Mm -hmm. Um, And then in May, the Mothers Against Drunk Driving released a report of more than 241 examples of auto tech that could help prevent drunk driving. So there's a lot of this stuff out there. Well, and I think that's where it it could be great. Yeah. But these are some of the obstacles that they're facing. And when I look at some of this technology, too, where do you stop and start? Okay, so we're focused on drunk driving right now. No one's going to argue that. But we were talking about this the other day. I don't know if it's like the fast and furious effect or whatever. Mm-hmm. But if I see another Mazda Miata cut across three lanes mm-hmm. of traffic just to exit because they think they can and they're being cool, I don't know what. I mean, I'm going to have some serious road rage here. I mean, how about some sensors to prevent those people yeah. from not doing that or yeah. lock the car up when you start doing that kind of crap? Mm-hmm. Now that, who's angry, Jeff? Yeah. No. I'm su- Yeah. I'm super <laughs> pissed. I mean, these people yeah. are just idiots and they're putting – tens of pe- dozens of people in danger when they're doing this stuff no and i understand that it can be a slippery slope in terms of too much regulation going into a car um it's it's just too much dependence potentially mm-hmm. on technology again automotive sensors just aren't there yet mm-hmm. i mean i'm sort of saying they could be mm-hmm. i'm just saying when we look at implementing these are the things we have to be aware of and think about too they have 10 years right to yeah. figure yeah. It out that's what the plan is if your car thinks you're drunk mm-hmm can you still drive it autonomously, you think? Well, I would think so. I mean, what are your concerns, that it's going to take you to Taco Bell? Uh, no, that would be my That'd be, destination. That would be right, the purpose. Yeah, yeah default. No, so. Yeah, exactly. like uh, if, my, if the knob recognized I was drunk, it would automatically go and order a number six. I think part um, of the appeal of autonomous vehicles is that. I mean, like once they can make them. 
super safe yeah. Uh, yeah. that that they would cut down on on some of that driver behavior problems that are causing accidents yeah my only thought was how you know you can be you know sleeping in the car with the keys still outside of it or whatever but still like kind of get in trouble for drunk driving now oh. you know but like i just would hope that once autonomous driving technology is realized that's also something that you know you're not penalized for yeah uh, i don't know i yeah. don't know either uh all right next story ford is going build to order Ford might be moving away from the traditional sales model. Instead of relying on the more than 3,000 dealerships in the U.S., the company's CEO, Jim Farley, said Ford is, quote, committed to going to an order-based system. Ford has somewhat tested with the tested this with online-only Ford Express Buy modules, which sell the Mustang Mach-E. Ford says the pandemic shifted buyers from traditional in-person dealership experiences and test drives to shopping online for specific features that they want. Ford also said that the chip shortage has made buyers more patient. And of all the positive spins I've heard about the chip shortage, Anna, that was a good one. Just well, like, they're forced to be more patient. <laughs> yeah. I don't know that it's like a voluntary thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting story. Ford announced earlier this spring that its China operations would be moving forward with establishing like a direct sales network for its EVs. Mm -hmm. They were offering what they called a one-stop everything online experience, which includes service, pickup, delivery, all that stuff. So I think Ford's latest announcement as it pertains to the U.S. market, it kind of stopped short of saying that they're trying to like outright ditch their dealerships. Mm -hmm. Um, Though a new article in the New York Times that I, I saw recently said that millennial buyers are actually twice as likely as baby boomers. To buy a vehicle completely online, that's not a surprise. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, we've seen Tesla struggle with disintermediation, if you will, though they have been largely successful um, with their direct-to-consumer model. They've had to kind of get around some, like, legal things and people not wanting to take those yeah. dealerships out of the mix. But mm-hmm. they've largely got around that. Um, I think for Ford buyers who are probably a bit more demographically diverse than your average Tesla buyer, I think there will be a place for dealerships for a very long time. Mm-hmm. But I bet if you're Ford, um, <clears throat> I bet if you're a Ford dealer, you should be bracing for the impact of potentially um, a shifting in volume for you. If, mm-hmm. if Ford is going to take a bite now out of your, your ability to sell you know, to a certain set of consumers, if the, they're going directly online, because you know, what Ford was saying essentially, and, and a lot of people are, is that like in Europe, people just buy cars exactly the kind of car they want mm-hmm. and then they just wait for it. Yeah. And we don't do that here. We go to a dealership and we buy like an approximate version of what we're yeah. looking for because it's there. Yeah. It's an inventory. It's got a good, good hand feel. But now, as you mentioned, consumers are getting more used to waiting for things. Maybe they think, well, this isn't so bad if I can order down to the every single spec item that I want, it, you know, and I have to wait a couple of months for it, I will. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I could see, I, I think we could see more of this. Jeff, we had a coworker, bought his new car, sight unseen, online, and it gave me anxiety. Could you do it? Yeah. Um, I think if you know what you're getting, uh, yeah. if you have an idea, approximation, what you're looking for, I, this isn't that new. You mm-hmm. can do this right mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Um while ago, you know, I wanted a specific vehicle. I wanted to have a sunroof color, interior, stuff like that. So it was kind of this process. I did it through the dealership at that point as opposed to going online. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that was 15 years ago, so that's why. But, mm-hmm. but having a custom-made vehicle isn't that new. And we've talked about this in so many other facets of manufacturing. It's kind of about time that this got a bigger push on the automotive side. We've talked about design for manufacturing models. We've talked about build-to-order and greater levels of customization in any number of products. Mm -hmm. I think it's a positive thing here for Ford and really for the automotive sector overall because inventory issues have always been what's gotten them in trouble. Mm -hmm. When you look at the recession back in 2008, automotive was in trouble because they had all these vehicles Mm -hmm. and they were making all these vehicles and they weren't making any money on them because they ended up having to sell a lot of these late model options to rental car agencies and fleets and things like that. So this makes a ton of sense in terms of controlling that inventory. I don't think dealerships are ever going away. Maybe mm-hmm. this type of model has fewer of them, and maybe there are fewer vehicles on the lot. Don't think that's a bad thing for anybody, even the consumer. Because you can still, you, I think you'll still be able to go there, 
but then you are going to be locked in a little bit more. Yeah. Hey, we got a blue one, a red one. Uh, we got these two engines. If you want it right now, this is your. This is all you got. Mm-hmm. However, there is this other option. Yeah. I think what'll be interesting if this does really catch on and become more of the preferred um, channel in terms of vehicle buying is what that does to the used car market. Yeah. Because potentially, if you're buying something that's it's customized to exactly the way you like it, you might hold on to it longer. Mm-hmm. Um, there's going to be fewer potential vehicles out there coming from some of these other areas that have been producing more used cars, like rental cars and, and fleets and stuff like that. So I think that would be kind of interesting, too, to see what that does to the used car market, which right now is already at premium in terms of pricing. So if there's less stuff out there, I mean, the used car market could also really benefit potentially from something like this. Because yeah. there will be lower inventory levels driving up the price. Or dealerships end up uh, selling only used cars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, I mean, I think it's it makes a ton of sense for Ford. And, you know, borrowing off of what Anna said about Tesla, I mean, their sales have continued to go mm-hmm. up, and that's how they do this. Mm-hmm. So It's the only way they do it. Yeah. Um, I was interested in the number of potential jobs that would be impacted by this. Uh, according to Ford, its dealerships employ more than 170,000 people in the United States. So I thought if it did disrupt this model, regardless of the timeline, that's a lot of people possibly out of work. Well, just the one caveat I think there is, yeah, I mean, we think about the salespeople and stuff Mm -hmm. like that and financing and all of those folks. The financing is still probably going to be there, you think, and also the service part of the dealership's business, I think, continues to to just escalate. Mm -hmm. So that's why a physical location, whether they're selling or fixing, it's always going to be there. The average sales rep for Ford makes $140,000 annually. I found that staggering. It's a lot of F-150s. <laughs> True. I guess it wasn't broken down by market, or I didn't go that far down the rabbit hole. But uh, that is not a bad year. That's that's pretty solid, yeah. Right? I mean, you got voices for that. <laughs> 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 All right. Uh, our next most popular story this week. The U.S.'s cheapest electric vehicle. Nissan has slashed the starting price of the newest Leaf model by thousands of dollars. However, the title of the most affordable EV in the U.S. still comes at a steep price. The, tw- uh, the 2022 Leaf will start at $27,000, $27,400, down more than $4,000 compared to the 2021 model. With the federal tax credit for EVs, the starting price could drop below twenty dollars The more economic version gives you a range of about 150 miles, but if you're willing to spend $10,000 more, you can get a range of about 200 miles per charge. Jeff, is this enough to entice you to maybe have that second car be an EV? A Leaf. No. <laughs> <laughs> and and here's, what, here's what I don't get. I think this type of approach, is if you're into EVs, maybe this gets you to double down on it, make you feel better about it, maybe get that second vehicle because mm-hmm. it is more affordable. But when you look at changing a paradigm, I almost feel like this feeds into all of the negative thoughts about electric vehicles with them potentially not being as reliable. And I'm not saying they are. I'm saying this is sort of the buyer perspective on this. Mm -hmm. If you lower the price, it almost makes it feel like a cheaper option, which in some people's mind can also mean it's it's not as good. Oh, man, they can't win. I mean, I I don't think this is the right (laughs) approach to take here. When you look at the best-selling vehicle right in in the planet, right around the planet, or in the U.S. right now being the Ford F-150, Mm-hmm. It's the most expensive truck out there. Yeah. It is. And people still buy it because they like it, they're attached to it, and because it has quality and reliability all over it. If they really want to focus on something to get people to buy more EVs, that 300-mile range, mm-hmm. that's got to be the standard. Yeah. I don't think 200, because when if you fill up your gas tank, if I fill up my gas tank right now and I say how many miles till the next fill up, it's over 400 miles. Yeah. So when you're looking at less than that, less than half of that, that's just it's not going to change people's minds. I don't think this is the right move. Yeah. If you're looking to get people to buy more EVs. See, the only reason I disagree is because I'm the exact opposite side of that, where I looked at this and I'm like, okay, we're looking at replacing our second car soon. This is finally a price point that I could, for lack of a better term, gamble. Mm-hmm. You know, where I would feel safe replacing my second car with this and just trying it out. I don't know, Anna, if you, uh, what your thoughts were on the new cheaper Leaf. Well, I just thought it was kind of interesting timing, I thought, for this move, mm-hmm. since the auto market is in such a weird place right now. So if you've been following the string of earnings reports from the biggest automakers, which is like GM, Ford, Stellantis, Nissan, BMW, Volkswagen, pretty much everyone, their financial reports sort of buck the narrative that the automakers are really struggling to survive in the wake of this unprecedented like supply shortage that they're mm-hmm. facing 
the reality is they're all posting enormous profits right now. Mm -hmm. um, and that's because the lack of inventory is driving up the price on vehicles. Um, consumers are the ones that are suffering because there's competition. There's very little inventory. Prices are high. They don't have much choice, right? Right. So why is Nissan lowering the price of the Leaf now? It might be an interesting strategy, I think, to gain an advantage by grabbing this sort of entry level price niche during a time when Nissan's cash flow is finally improving. Mm -hmm. Because Nissan basically had like two years of garbage reports yeah. after their CEO fled Japan in a box, which is a totally normal thing that happens yeah. a lot, yeah. to yeah. a lot of companies. Yeah. Um, but they finally had a good quarter mm -hmm. and they actually raised their outlook. And I think things might be looking up for them right now. So maybe they're looking forward to this flood of EVs on the market and they're thinking, how do we differentiate ourselves? Let's be the entry price point on this because nothing touches this right now, right? Right, right. So I don't know. That's my thought. No, and I mean, that is a very reasonable starting price uh, starting price to make me think twice about it. But again, you guys are already there. Yeah. So you're doubling down. Like yeah. you're now I'm really and now I'm really interested. If you're looking at shifting behaviors, mm -hmm. that's where I think this could not be as effective as focusing on things like range. Yeah. Now I'm so, now quite honestly, if I was looking for a new, I have no prejudice against an electric vehicle because primarily it's going back and forth to work. Two hundred mm -hmm. miles, right. that's plenty right. for for what I need. Mm -hmm. It's just on those bigger trips, well, or if you are a one vehicle household. Yeah. Well, and you know, we recently ran a story. I think we ran it. Uh, yeah, we ran it yesterday about how. Um, the automotive industry has a huge problem on its hands because you know Gen Z is not they're not buying yeah. or they're not even getting a driver's license and a big reason they're not getting that driver's license is because they're afraid of the environmental impact and you know maybe a combination of the price points and the mm -hmm. fact that this is an EV maybe that could help sway them a little bit well, I think another factor, and we'll see how it plays out. I mean, gas prices are kind of a roller coaster as far as predicting what's going to go on there, but they're up a lot lately. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, capitalizing on that factor as well and sort of throwing that into the sales pitch could also be beneficial here. Right. Can I go old man for a second and just say, mm -hmm. I can't imagine not getting my license the day it was available. <laughs> Sorry. Just I've got three, three kids that are right there. Mm -hmm. One is just not into it right now, and the other two are chomping at the bit. Yeah. So... And I mean, that's similar to what I've heard from other families. Yeah. I was just flying down the gravel road, waving out, and <laughs> maybe not coming back. But, you know, I was, <laughs> I was thinking about that, though. The weird thing is, like, we needed, it was such a social connection with getting your license and being able to go someplace and do stuff and hang out. Yeah. I mean, they've got a phone where they can, there is a substitute for that. It's oh, not, that's true. It's not the same as being there. I'm not trying yeah. to say that. Yeah. But, like, there's just not that same drive or that same need because it's so easy to connect and do stuff. They hang out all the time and do whatever yeah. right on their phones. Yeah, yeah. remember when yeah, your group chat. somebody would be on the internet in your house and you would pick up the phone and it would be like, <laughs> <laughs> and then you couldn't call anyone and that was just what happened. Yeah, it would also yeah. break your connection. I was playing Dune! Doom. All right, next most popular story this week. Electric vehicle startup plans $5 billion second factory. Rivian Automotive is an electric vehicle startup backed by Amazon. The company is based in California, but has plans to build a second U.S. assembly plant for some $5 billion. The new plant will include a 50-gigawatt battery cell production operation built in phases as well as a product and technology center. The plant is nicknamed Project Terra, and it will require 2,000 acres of land. The announcement will be made in the next couple of months, and several states have made bids for the factory. Even though it hasn't been announced yet, they hope to break ground in 2022. Rivian currently has a plant in Normal, Illinois. While Rivian is making an electric pickup and SUV, it still owes Amazon about 100,000 electric vehicles by 2024. Jeff, I feel like we talk about startup electric vehicle companies all the time, but when you're backed by Amazon, you got a safety net. Yeah, which is the good part of this, right? Mm -hmm. But how is this company already looking at a valuation north of $50 billion? I want to come up with valuations. I mean, yeah. what, just be like, what is that? They just make put, up numbers. Like, hyphen Amazon, $50 I mean, million. I, and you know, like, if Bezos is at all attached to this, like, they're going to build it in Texas, right? Just so they can, like, be right next to the Tesla plant and be like, ours is a little bit bigger, you know? <laughs> 
<laughs> so that's a cute little factory you have over there, whatever you're doing. I'm but... sorry, Giga? Is that what you call it? Mm-hmm. That's adorable. It's adorable, <laughs> yeah. Our softball team can beat yours any day. Um, so, I mean, it is cool that, again, I mean, when you look at the, what they're trying to do, the fact that they have Amazon's backing, and the fact that it is unique in the terms of they're looking at trucks, or a truck, an SUV, and then a fleet vehicle. We got on Bezos a little bit for going up to space and look, looking at taking factories up there and stuff. Well, yeah. this is something that would help be from an environmental perspective, having an electric fleet of vehicles. I yeah. mean, that's, that's a positive thing for them to be attached to. Mm-hmm. What was cool here, you know, we were just talking about Nissan going, cutting prices on electric vehicles, the range being about 200 miles. These are $70,000 vehicles mm-hmm. with a 300-mile range. So if that's what they're looking to build on and create a $50 billion company, yeah. it's an interesting departure from what we were just talking about, too. No, I had the same thought, too, is that we spent the last couple of weeks bagging on Bezos. <laughs> you know, <laughs> put your money where your mouth is. And it's like, oh, he, he, he put did. a significant he, amount yeah. there. Okay. Uh, Anna, you know, being based in Wisconsin, like, I feel like we're all still pretty leery because we saw how Foxconn went down with the prospect of a new multi-billion dollar factory coming to town and how it disrupted all of southeastern Wisconsin. Do you get that sort of leery feeling at all? Or does this feel like a safer bet, you know, because it has a tangible product? Uh, yeah, the Foxconn thing, I think, was a little bit more predictable. Okay. Um, although, when I hear the word electrical or electric vehicle s- startup, I think, what could go wrong? <laughs> what sort of fraud has transpired here? <laughs> yeah. I mean, seriously, though, the difference, I think, between Rivian and some of the companies we've discussed in previous podcasts is that the, like they have vehicles that are ready to go um, mm-hmm. and they're nice like the the specs of them are great although to Jeff's point they are very pricey um, I think the other difference between Rivian and your Lordstowns and your Nicolas is that they're a private company still um, to me that helps deflate some of the overhype of these other companies we're like encountering I think with their maybe premature IPOs that they issued yeah. before they had their products done 50 billion seems like insanity to me also yeah. But I do think that Rivian might actually be one of the winners here. So hopefully they don't ruin it under the pressure of this insane valuation when they go for that IPO. But I guess the other big challenge I foresee is that when the flood of EVs come over the next few years, um, that Rivian, I don't know, like can they find enough buyers in Mm -hmm. this um, price range? Because I know we're talking about people are becoming more accustomed to paying more for vehicles. And we saw that in 2020. Um, that that was the highest, uh, you know, individual price point for a vehicle record in 2020. Um, I won't be surprised if we break that record in 2021. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, maybe people are getting used to paying more. However, like when there's 50, 60 options yeah. and yeah. you're in that 70K price range, who are your buyers? I think that could be a challenge for them long term for now. It's not there yet, but I would agree. I, I think two of the three offerings that they're looking at are definitely have a viable option of being of being successful. That being the SUV and the fleet vehicle. Mm-hmm. The seventy grand for an SUV, electric SUV, I could definitely see people gravitating towards that if it has all the bells and whistles and mm-hmm. it can it can provide the same type of luxury that like a um, you know an Escalade or a Range Rover or something like that, if that's where it's looking to compete. It's a little bit less expensive than some of those. Where I think they're going to struggle is that truck. Mm-hmm. Because okay, a lot of, you know, if we talk about F-150s or Silverados or whatever you're looking at, those are work trucks for a lot of folks. Yep. And I think there's still going to be some hesitancy, going back to all the stuff we were talking about before, with having a pickup truck as your work vehicle. Yeah. Because you don't know what your day is going to be like on a, uh, from day to day. Well, and... There is going to be the F one fifty Lightning option. Mm-hmm. So You're right. where yeah. Rivian, where Rivian wants to beat Tesla and Nikola to market with an electric truck and the SUV that you mentioned, I mean, I feel like they should just focus on serving their master. You know, get the Amazon <laughs> deal done. I mean, there's yeah. a lot on the line there. Yeah. There's a huge order, and you could crush the fleet vehicle market without trying to be the you know the first to market electric truck. Yeah, you know, that's a good point. Um, I don't, I don't know. I just. Uh, you know, priorities, man. <laughs> All right. Our top story this week. Lightning strike sets off massive blaze at railroad tie recycling facility. On Sunday, August 1st, a lightning strike set off a massive fire at National Salvage and Services Selma Grinding and Sorting Operation in Burnsville, Alabama. Lightning hit the facility around 6 p.m. and the fire burned for many days. Thousands of discarded railroad ties were set ablaze and the fire was so large that weather radar imagery picked it up. 
The yard typically warehouses thousands of these chemically treated railroad ties, which are ground up and then used to fuel industrial boilers. The ties generally are made of oak and are soaked in creosote, which makes them extremely flammable. Nobody was injured as the company's 25 employees were not at the site when the fire was started. But at one point, the fire became so hot that firefighters had to back away and let it burn. But luckily, rain showers somewhat contained the blaze or at least prevented its spread. Jeff, do you think lightning started the fire? It sounds that way. I mean, that's what all the reports are saying. There was nobody on site, fortunately, mm-hmm. at the time. Nobody was um, was hurt or, or, or worse. Um, what is going on, though, with these stories? Now, with these fires, this is the third one we've covered where, again, it was picked up by, like, weather service radar because the extent and the scope of it was so dramatic and mm-hmm. just so big. Again, this is another one where they're worried about particulates in the air and the surrounding communities and, and everything else. We talked about the Kempark deal in Germany last year, or excuse me, last week, last year, last week, and how, how all that infrastructure together sort of helped them manage that. But you also wonder, like, if more of this comes together on these sites, these fires are just getting that much worse. Mm-hmm. Right. And when it comes to fires, you know, I know you're usually the stat guy, so I'm sorry if I'm no, you're you're trampling here no, you're or anything, good. but... The last research I could find puts an average of about 37,000 industrial fires per year, which is a huge number. Mm -hmm. But what's also interesting, on a positive note, 37,000 fires, only about 16 deaths per year and about 270 injuries. Mm -hmm. So for that many, that's pretty low. Yeah. 1.2 1.2 billion in damage though right so you've got these crazy sort of conflicting numbers and I think what happens because a lot of that damage is picked up by insurance companies mm-hmm. and because the individual loss is lower I wonder if there's just sort of a feel at some of these places like well it's not going to happen here we've got people protected you know yeah. I don't know if there's just sort of just a, not an, enough of an appreciation for what could happen I'm not saying these folks were at fault but it's just these fires are so massive yeah when they do hit, that if there isn't more that from a proactive perspective that maybe could be done, you can't stop a lightning lightning no. from striking yeah. chemically treated wood. But, but I mean, kind of like, because at first I definitely think I thought about giving them a pass because of all the things we have seen blamed on an act of God. I mean, yeah, that was this. Yep. But I mean, there are preventative measures like airports have t- for to prevent lightning strikes, you know, to have certain equipment set up so that way to steer the lightning away from the giant pile of fuel-soaked wood. Put a rooster um, up there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a rooster? <laughs> you know, the, what? Aren't those like those metal roosters that like yes, are supposed it, to get the lightning? That is uh, that is one not, method, but I didn't Put a rooster it. on it. Put a rooster up there. Just like a pile of wood and just stick that right on top of it? Like, yep. Yeah. Okay. Just like, I meant a metal bird, John. No. <laughs> uh but no, it's, uh, I feel like sometimes you do have to plan for this, but this one, Anna, I mean, it was incredible how it happened. And uh, again, luckily no one was hurt. For sure. Um, I, when I first saw the story, I kind of went down a rabbit hole trying to figure out what, um, what, what railroad ties had to do with industrial fuel. Oh, yeah. Um, so this creosote, I had never heard of before, this mm-hmm. wood preservative. Um, and, and obviously, as David said, it's highly flammable. So the company that operates Selma Grinding and Sorting, uh, where the fire occurred, is called National Salvage. And they send heavy equipment to remove old railroad tracks. Mm-hmm. Um, and they re- removed more than 3,000 miles of track across the U.S. Wow. They actually sell used railroad ties that people sometimes use for like landscaping and decking projects, oh, okay. kind of like consumer stuff. But what they don't or can't sell, they recycle. And National has recycled about 5 million railroad ties to be used for boiler fuel, as you said. Um, And that's what's being done in this plant in Selma. But according to National, quote, this job alone, grinding down this, you know, this wood for fuel, offsets the greenhouse gas and fossil fuel impact of 25,000 people. End quote. Which is interesting. What's that? I believe it. It, Well, it's interesting because this product is made to burn and mm-hmm. and then yet the environmental environmental toxicologist with the Alabama Department of Public Health was calling the smoke from this fire hazardous from several different compounds contained within the the site so you know and elsewhere i read warnings that railroad ties treated with creosote shouldn't be used in garden beds or children's like play areas mm-hmm. because the chemicals can leak into the soil one one website said that they can kill vegetables oh so Again, I, I would no. I would be concerned with leaching. 
Leaching. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So uh, there's some different spins on like how environmentally friendly this process is. Yeah. Um, I'm interested. I don't, I'm not an expert on this. It's just interesting to me that like the, the company says that this is like a green process basically. Yeah. Um, well, and then, you know, the toxicologist is saying like, this is a very scary and potentially toxic fire. That was an interesting pause you had there. And probably you said killing. I like, I wasn't sure where you're going to go. And you said vegetables. I was actually a little relieved. Yeah. Like, vegetables. I was like, yeah. yeah. It just took the chart. Um, <laughs> no, I was, uh, see, I thought the same thing is because, you know, where they stand in, uh, probably in the pile, mm-hmm. they're quite hazardous. But, you know, we did the story a couple weeks ago about uh, the cement uh, producer, the cement factory that is going to use old tires in Michigan to fuel these boilers. Yeah, old tires. Well, but there's so there's a process around how these are used as fuel. So that way, it, you know, they're not it's not just like you're throwing a tire in your pallet fire in the in the field, you know. Yeah. To there are protections and filters. Hmm? Can they do something about the smell? Holy cow! I mean, I don't want to be Ooh. the guy loading the tires or the ground up railroad ties into the boiler. That's yeah. a big pass for me. That's yeah. like a three shower after that job. Yeah, I'm glad they found. <laughs> I'm glad they found a way to do it, but oof, that well, sounds rough. There is a lot of weird things that surrounded this event. Did you guys see the smoke NATO? So. From the ashes, this weird, huge column column of smoke that they were calling a smoke a smoke nado appeared. But it's not a tornado. It was like they said it was like a dust devil, but the one that was made out of fire and smoke. Well, this site. I mean, if you get a chance, watch it on the site. Just the footage. It was creepy. I mean, it was incredible. It looked like Armageddon. I mean, yeah. it was just. Mm-hmm. Well, can mm-hmm. we talk about that footage for a second? Who was the person with their phone out in the golf cart driving towards the flame, just like? Sure, well, burning hot. It burned for a couple days. Yeah. I mean, it just, it wouldn't go out. And like where it was done burning, it just looked like a ghost town. I mean, it looked mm-hmm. like a war zone or something. It was, it was crazy. David, there's always that person everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> everywhere has one of those persons. That's why there's always footage now. Yep. Uh, the other thing is that you do, you had mentioned it earlier, but we had talked about like on-site emergency uh, personnel that some of these factories have. This is an example of where the fire was fought by many different volunteer fire departments. Yeah. And, you know, when people don't have those resources in house, mm-hmm. it's great that some of these areas provide these services to put that fire out. Because I know there are parts of the nation that that wouldn't be possible. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. terrifying. Yeah. All right, and they were actually helped because it was raining a little bit too. Right? So yeah. It have been worse. Can you imagine that? Just like, well, at least it's raining. <clears throat> otherwise, we're going to lose the town. What? Yeah. Um. All right. Let's move on to in case you missed it, uh, where we discuss stories that. Maybe weren't the most popular on the site, but still stand to make a big impact on the industry going forward. Uh, Anna, let's start with you. What is your in case you missed it this week? Sure. So um, Cleveland Cliffs, one of the biggest steelmakers in the country, has announced what it's calling the most generous vaccine incentive program in the world. And I don't think this is hyperbole. This is definitely probably the best one that I've seen. Mm-hmm. Um so I think it's smart because it's not just an individual cash incentive. It, it's um, Cleveland Cliffs is offering workers a $1,500 bonus if 75% of the workers in their facility are vaccinated. Okay. Um, and that bonus reaches $3,000 per individual if your site gets to 85%. Wow. So um, no word yet on how it's going. Mm-hmm. Uh, the company has given workers until August 21st to show the HR department proof of vaccination. Um, and if the facilities don't reach these thresholds, then each individual who is vaccinated gets a $200 bonus. So that's nice. Um, I don't know. I, I like this approach. Um, I know mandates are here and they've been a bit controversial. I don't want to get into that debate mm-hmm. now, but I would say this. If you're a business owner and vaccine campaigns are important to you, um, as they are for many businesses who worry about both the health and economic impacts of outbreaks, Consider something like this. I know it was expensive, but it's a one-time cost. Um, you know, it's probably worth the investment if you think about um, what the, the how much know. it costs for like downtime. Well, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And you know, I I think if you make it a little bit more of a no-brainer for your workforce, then yeah. maybe you get some of those folks that are on the fence um, that wouldn't do it for like a hundred dollars or a beer yeah. or yeah. whatever. Yeah, I yeah, mean, it, it really they went like all out on it. So I'm really interested to see what happens when we find out if they, hopefully they'll report the results of this campaign at the end of the month. No, I definitely like this as well. It was inspiring because it's not only team building, 
Uh, but it's also, you heard about all the incentives where it's like, we're going to give you a half hour off. Mm-hmm. You'll be paid for your time. Yep. Yeah. It's just like, I don't even know if I'd do that. Well, I think it's a good point too, Anna. You brought up, you know, there are some folks who have very adamant feelings about it or health reasons why. But if you're on the fence, I mean, what a great incentive. I mean, mm-hmm. that's amazing that this company was able to do this and has the, the resources to mm-hmm. do it. Um, but like you said, David, they're probably looking sort of at the ROI on it too. Yeah. So yeah. Well, it's a cool sure. story. You said, that, you said that the other week, like the average like downtime per hour is like a million dollars at some facilities. In auto, right? In auto, yeah. 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 Um, what is it if they get to eighty five percent? They get three grand. Yeah. All right. Well, seventy five percent is fifteen hundred. Eighty five percent is three thousand. Okay. It's a well, lot of money. Yeah. I mean, we're at. I think we're at one hundred percent here. So yeah, we get boss man in here. Yeah. yeah. Let's talk. Fly to, that up the HR pool. See what yeah. happens. Huh. I'll give it my best shot. <laughs> I'll have a couple of drinks first. <laughs> <laughs> I think he needs a couple as well. Oh yeah, no. We'll we'll get uh get it on the napkin. Yeah. Get it on the napkin. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My in case you missed it this week was a story that came out uh today. Crisis averted on as an oil rig decommissioning goes bad. And the footage was gnarly. So on July 5th, Three workers were nearly crushed to death by a 200 metric ton platform while it was being dismantled off the coast of Western Australia. These technicians were working on a decommissioned Santos oil rig when a crane removing the top sides uh, began to swing out of control. The workers were exposed after they took the top platform off of the oil rig. They were clinging to the remaining steel column below as like debris was raining down on them. The workers were planning to remove the platform in two steps. First, they were going to use a torch to cut through most of the steel column, and then the crane would hold the weight of the top sides while the crew cut through the rest of the column. Well, it didn't go according to plan, and as soon as they cut through it, it just started swaying wildly. Jeez. It was incredible footage, and luckily no one was hurt, likely because of the crane operator's quick thinking. So... It reportedly, the crane operator did everything he could to move the top sides as far as he could away from people. It still caused it to swing and debris to fall, which there was also people on the boat that were at risk of like, you know, you watch this video and the debris looks tiny, but then you compare it to the people and you mm-hmm. realize it's like <laughs> truck sized debris. Right, yeah. So the, the top size weighed 440,925 pounds and the company still has 17 more of these structures mm-hmm. to go. So... Oh, it's going to be over the next five years and they have to hold off, you know, until the investigation figures out like what went wrong. But this was incredible. And it was just due to a worker's quick thinking that, mm-hmm. you know, likely quick thinking that everybody kind of made it out. And I thought that was an incredible story. Yeah. Well, you talk about a worker shortage. Who wants to do the job of of dealing with the rest of these? I, you know, we've seen a lot more of these extreme jobs. I mean, unfortunately, we I was exposed to them as a result of the injuries that take place, you know. Uh, the people that work uh, that are underwater maintenance men in like mm-hmm. scuba gear that wind up kind of getting sucked into fans and vents sometimes. Uh, but it is, they do incredible work in incredibly dangerous situations. And I just, you see them gearing up and you're like, thanks for doing it, buddy. Yeah, man. So was this more just an unexpected circumstance or was it the wind and the weather that they, had the bigger? <clears throat> I don't know. They haven't figured that out yet as to why, because part of me thought maybe it was part of the crane operator that it started swinging i yeah. think it was also wind but it's weird because it just pops right off and then just starts going well because there's it's not the same but it reminds me of that story we had in the, the gulf of mexico where they were going out with that boat mm-hmm. with the, the rigging boat it was like a temporary rig that they were using or, or something like that and it capsized and oh yeah folks, mm-hmm. yeah folks died and stuff so the fact that this crane operator was able to figure it out, I mean, what a relief. I'm sure it's a mix up because the crane, you know, was on another vessel, like a, a vessel that is made specifically for this to have, like, you know, uh, a crane capable of moving this heavy yeah. equipment. But it is, uh, I encourage you to check it out because it is gnarly. Going to need a bigger crane. Good. Well, I mean, that's what I thought. And also the fact that there's just three guys out there that are just like, think we got her. We don't. Like, you know, I mean, yeah. I, can, I can't think of more terrifying things when well, a house is essentially above you swinging freely. Yeah, it's kind of like I got hooked on this Netflix show, Big Timber, where they're oh, cutting yeah. down these huge trees mm-hmm. up in British Columbia. And it's kind of, I mean, not the same, but similar dynamic. You see these guys sitting next to these massive trees. Oh, God. Like, it's going to fall right there. And when it kind of doesn't a little, like, they're freaking out trying to figure out which way to run. I mean, yeah, scary. No, it is uh, the people that do that work. I always, you know, 
I love to, uh, you know, cut down trees and do lumber up north casually. <laughs> and I was like, at one point, like, maybe this is a career I could find myself in. And then I watched some of these and I'm like, definitely not. Yeah. It's definitely not for me. Oh, yeah. David's new nickname is Big Timber. Yeah. All right. All right. No. What <laughs> Davy Woodside? Ah, Big Timber <laughs> is gonna work better than Davy Woodside. Either way, I'll both I'll get the jerseys made. Uh, Jeff, nice. What is your in case you missed it this week? So I have to give some credit to podcast contributor Andy Zoll for sort of bringing greater attention to this story because <laughs> it's a good one. It probably would have caught my anyway, but like he was very passionate about this. Some of it, some of the uh, content here, and I agree with him because um, Coors Molson Coors has. Con- decided to discontinue 11 of what they refer to as their economy beers. Economy mm-hmm. beers. Economy mm-hmm. beers. College kid beers. So the the list here, there's a lot of like malt liquors, which yeah. can understand maybe those aren't real popular right now. So yeah. the 11, first of all, Milwaukee's Best Premium. Now, I never knew Milwaukee's Best had a premium. What does <laughs> premium mean? It means a maroon box. I mean, God bless them. Milwaukee's <laughs> Best, you couldn't get a cheaper quarter barrel in college. So, you know, it had its place. So yeah. here all this time, we didn't know there was a premium option. It mm-hmm. was probably like two bucks more. Till it's too late. Yeah. yeah. Get so out there and no more it. Milwaukee's Best Premium. Mickey's, fine malt liquor is going. There is something called Keystone or no, Keystone, Keystone Ice was another one. Now, I thought ice beers were like a fad. Mm-hmm. Like, I thought those were done. Yeah, like, like anyway. when Big Dog died, that one, or Red Dog. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that went away with it. But apparently, well, no more Keystone Ice. Something called Key Lightful, mm. which is like some sort of fruity beer Not that Keystone no. does. I don't know how That's... that could go well. Ham's Special Light. First of all, I didn't know Ham's had a light beer, but they also have a special <laughs> light. No, they used to. Henry Weiner's Private Reserve, which was like a Northwest um, brand, apparently very popular, like in Oregon, Washington. Ice House Edge Magnum, which was a malt liquor. Uh, Steel Reserve 211, an old English HG 800. Yeah. Other 40 night favorites. Yeah, there. yeah. When everyone's got their 40 hands on. But the one that caught my eye, and Andy's as well, was Miller High Life Light. That's one that they're discontinuing because that was a staple. I can remember when that was on sale for like $4.99, we would get like. 10, 12 packs and just stock up. And we drank that for a long time. So Are no you more Miller High Life Light. Hoard it. Find yeah, it. Yeah, have no, to find it. Gonna, and you're going to drink hard, hard seltzer and you're going to like it. <laughs> you don't have a choice. No, too many bubbles. Oh, my God. Um, too many bubbles. So, so, yeah, Andy and I are both mourning the loss of Miller High Life Light and a little piece of our college memories, I guess. Yeah. yeah. That is well, sad. luckily – for everyone in college, there will always be the two ninety nine, twenty four pack Natty Light. Yeah, no. Uh, oh, what is it? I can't, I'm not going to remember it. But my our neighbor used to always just have bags of it. It was like Mountain something bags. Um, you don't buy beer in oh, bags. Oh no, those were the, where the cans were. Oh. Just like you'd wake up and there'd be the can outside the door or the bag outside the door, and you're like, he had a hard night. Like, uh, I can't believe how much Bush Light my friends drink. Yeah. I just can't handle it. It's just that for me. <laughs> but it's an inexpensive beer and apparently very popular. <laughs> well, before we move to final thoughts, we do have some comments from our uh, uh, viewers that are watching us live. Uh, Jesse Sorensen really liked the put a rooster on it <laughs> and said she's going to start working on merch. I mean. Thanks, Jesse. I, I agree. I will wear it. Yeah. Today in manufacturing, put a rooster on put it. Put a rooster on it. <laughs> it's just the. General catch-all solution. It just needs to be Anna pointing at the rooster on top of the logo. I don't know. We'll workshop it. Jesse. It's a weather vane. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> oh, man. Is David wearing a T-shirt on air? He wears a button down to mow the lawn. Oh. Mm, I do. No, it is a mock turtleneck. Thank you. I would never wear a T-shirt on air. Not No what judging. A, what a black polo shirt. That was a good comment. And uh, just to clarify, his name is Big Timber now. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> this is the official Big Timber mock turtleneck. Uh, Jesse also has some other comments. No need to share those. It's not in 4D, Jesse. There's nothing to smell. All right. If we don't have anything else, thank you guys very much for contributing to the live show. Uh, we do encourage people to ask more questions, pitch merch ideas. Love that. Uh, that smell is old grease, but that's an inside joke. Uh, let's move on to our final thoughts this week. Uh, Anna, 
What's your final thought this week? Uh, I would like to go back to something that you said earlier. Uh, smoke NATO. Yeah, and smoke just NATO. humbly request that we stop tagging NATO at the end of words. Can we stop it? I yes, we should. We should. We should. But look at this. That is a smoke NATO. Mm-mm. It's. No, nope. I mean, uh, I understand. It's a soon- lot of smoke swirling around. Let's just. I think you just gave Tara Reed an idea for her next movie. Smoke yeah, she's going to need it. Uh, we'll see, Anna, when they were writing the headline. A lot of smoke swirling around. <laughs> Didn't bring the SEO. Uh, here in Alabama, a lot of smoke swirling around. As you can see it, a lot of smoke. So we're just going to invent a word, and it's smoke NATO. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. My God, it's a smoke NATO. I disapprove. <laughs> put a rooster on it. Oh, uh, put, put a rooster on it. <laughs> oh, I hope that's your tagline. All right. <clears throat> uh, my final thought is: I don't know if you guys have had a chance to see the movie Nomadland. That's a gem. Please do that. It'll change you. It'll warm your soul. Uh, and uh, this week, you know, as a result of COVID, a lot of us lost people during the pandemic, and uh, a lot of us finally had a chance to say goodbye to a good one on Saturday and uh, that was good so it's nice that people can get together now and uh, you know grieve with one another Uh, Jeff what's your final thought Uh, that's a tough one to follow Um, I guess uh, the one thing I was just going to note I told you I went to an indoor shooting range the other day and it was kind of interesting how much more safety conscious they were Hmm. I think there's a lot more people coming in there with mm-hmm. the pandemic, limited things to do maybe, doing a little bit of that. So it was kind of an interesting potential byproduct of people who maybe hadn't been around firearms as much. They were definitely being more careful in terms oh. of protection, spacing, all that kind of stuff, making sure it was just a safer, better environment, which for me made it more enjoyable. Sounds so it's kind of cool. I was curious with the ammunition shortage, were people – because previously when I have gone to shooting ranges, people were not watching out for how much they were they were shooting, you know. There was buckets of 22 ammo that they were going through. Do you, were people being more mindful or were you guys more mindful of how much you were, uh, ammo you were using or uh, what, did that not come into play at all? Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was weird because I was talking to the guy a little bit because I was looking for 22 ammo and they had some. So I bought some and just he was just saying how it transitioned like early on. It was like a lot of like protect like for handguns and stuff yeah, like yeah. that, more protective type stuff. And now it's transitioned more to target shooting. Yeah. So there's been a run on it. So there's just... Um, yeah, less available just because all the stuff we've talked about in terms of supply chain and semi drivers and all that good stuff. There's a they ran out of handgun ammo, so <laughs> that's why right. they're just buying yeah. anything on the shelf. Uh, all right, well let's get out of here this week. Um, all right, before we get rolling, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe the, to the podcast. In the email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, Anna, or David at ien.com with email the podcast in the subject line. Also, if you want to subscribe to our daily or weekly newsletters. We'll make sure that we'll get it into your inbox first. Unless you watch it live, that's the best way to watch it. And then you can participate. I kind of liked it. <laughs> yeah. I enjoy it. I enjoyed the uh, a little bit live. Sure. Yeah. I don't know. I got, gave me the butterflies a little bit. Oh, you get a little nervous? I got, yeah. I got quite nervous. Quite nervous. Yeah. All right. For Jeff and Anna, I'm David Manti, and this is the Today in Manufacturing podcast. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast.